Hello and welcome. This is the Carbon Watchdog Podcast. My name is Adam Hardy and this is the very first Carbon Watchdog Podcast. So uh, if there are any technical glitches coming up, uh, I apologize for that ahead of time. Uh, if you want to abuse me for them, then you can head over to the Carbon Watchdog website and leave some comments there. And uh, you'll also find the link to my Patreon page if you want to support me in my endeavors, producing more podcasts like this. Um, on, my, on my podcast today, my guest is Kate Calvert. And she, like me, is a resident of Islington in North London. And um, she is a planning lobbyist and a thorn in the side of the London Borough Planning Departments. She is also a trustee of the startup charity Rational Carbon, which seeks to raise awareness of climate change and uh, to help individuals and communities reduce their carbon footprints. And she's also the editor of the Tufnell Park Parent Support Group magazine, which I've read since becoming a parent myself. And uh, I've known Kate for a long time now, and she is the most amazing source of information about all things to do with sustainability and reducing your carbon footprint. And one of the things that I'll be discussing with Kate today is the major low carbon retrofit that she carried out on her old Victorian house, which earned it the accolade of Superhome. So, hi, Kate. Hi, Adam. Good to chat. Hi, great. How's it going then? Well, good. I'd, I'd say one of the nice things about being in a Superhome after this heat that we've had this summer, and it wasn't part of the plan, but we discovered that when it's really hot in London, this house is really lovely and cool because all that insulation that keeps you warm in winter also keeps you cool in summer so um, it's made the house a lot more comfortable apart from any bonus for the outside world and the planet we're much more comfortable in the house okay I'll keep, I'm gonna pick you up on that because I read something the other day that said that there's a problem in Europe with all these really well insulated homes is that they're going to become incredibly inefficient in uh with climate change and general warming of the environment i assume that that's only then in a certain number of cases and it doesn't apply to you at all judging by the fact that what you just said well the house was built in about 1862 and it was pretty shoddily built we we discovered that it was a continuation of the shops on the main road around the corner so when we look carefully Actually, the ground floor is built for a shop and then they, they inserted a wall on top of the floor. So um, I don't think it was very carefully constructed and they certainly weren't worrying remotely about warmth or um, air moving in and out of the building. But it has lasted incredibly well. So on the Lon London bomb map, we noticed that a bomb fell just behind this house and indeed when the engineer came to look at it she said hmm quite a lot of this back wall's been rebuilt that's not the original brick so it seems that immediately after the second world war possibly during the second world war it was just kind of bodged back together again um 
it was certainly much more sustainable than the current system where it would be condemned out of hand and the bulldozers would move in. But, so there are some positives there. Yes. And I, I think that actually it's, it's a bit like, it's not really a plant, but it is a bit like the natural world. These buildings are much more flexible than the new ones and they kind of shift and adapt as long as you give them enough latitude to do that. So one of the issues I was really concerned and I could find no information about and I kept going to build exhibitions for the three years before we had the work done. Is it okay to insulate these houses on the outside? We started out with an architect who was really clean, keen to slap on an external cladding. And I kept going, no, these houses are meant to breathe. That's just the way they work. You know, these bricks absorb water, then the water evaporates. All absorb right. water, water evaporates. Oh, you don't yes. mean just, you don't mean drafts and going through? Uh, not just drafts, actual water. Okay. And sometimes drafts. Um, and I, I didn't know, but I just put my foot down and said, instinctively, this just seems wrong to me. And funnily enough, I was talking to another architect just last month who said, that's a dreadful thing to do to a house. Uh, these types of houses are meant to transpire a bit, right. both air and everything else. So luckily, although it was not the cheapest option, what we went for was something called Aerogel, which was kind of one of the offshoots of the space race. And we inserted that inside. Now Aerogel is a bit like fiberglass. So stuff can move through it. Should, should something come through the brick and hit their aerogel, it can move up to the plaster. The plaster is plaster, so things can move through it. So yes, we're insulated, but we can still breathe. Okay, that sounds like you've so got the best it, of both worlds. The problem is, luckily, um, but the problem is that I don't know whether architects don't do this or whether they're only beginning to study it now. So you need a young architect or if actually they're not that interested and it's a module that they don't have to tick. I, d I don't understand. We interviewed in the end seven architects. Seven? To find them. Seven. It's and true. they all said, yes, yes, really interested in eco stuff. Only one had done any eco work and that was on his own homes and you think how hard you know how hard is it <laughs> like... so it gives you the idea that nobody's actually doing this very much apart from you no no well it did it did feel very strongly like nobody was actually doing it um or maybe some people are doing it but they're not using an architect i don't know but but i felt i wanted an architect to talk me through what the options were, because you go to EcoBuild and you have no idea what works. Because obviously at the stand, they well, tell you- the exhibition. The exhibition, yes. Um, you go to somewhere where there's a kind of wallpaper with a bit of something shiny on the back. And they maintain that if you paste this on your walls, it will keep all the cold out. Just I mean, it looks unlikely. And sure enough, the architect said, no, don't, don't touch it with a barge pole. But how are you, as an amateur, supposed to know? <laughs> you don't. That's, so that's, that's horrific. Yeah. It's typical. Yeah, it's just typical of 
all this kind of stuff you people just don't know and they've got to they dig around dig around and find out for themselves yeah so i mean that where did the where does this super home term come from was is that still and is that still going because i know you did this in uh what's now eight years ago yes it no it, going or is it, it, a... it terminated about mm, nine months ago because they they were grant funded and uh the grant wasn't renewed and i think they felt that they they'd done what they could do um they created this network of super homes they would have an open day every september at the same time as open house more or less um and you went up on the website and then if people wanted to check out a house similar to the, yours then they would come and visit and you'd show them around um so did you have quite a few people coming sometimes and sometimes you know it would only be a couple of people um it really varied from year to year okay. and they were pretty varied in what they wanted to do and also pretty varied in um what they knew about i mean there was one scientist who turned up who was very scary about what is going to happen to the weather uh once we tip over the two degrees point very very scary i mean he said basically the wind will be so powerful nothing will be left standing i mean we'll be dead <laughs> wow was he a climatologist or was he and um, and there were other people who were much more interested really in the garden and ended up going home with some cuttings but but you know full range <laughs> so the uh the most expensive bit of the of the renovations that you did was that insulation with the aerogel or was it the pv in, the, the fault no it was the, it was the pv it? the pv um that was just over twelve thousand pounds call it thirteen thousand pounds um the insulation came in at oh no sorry the insulation came in at eighteen thousand in total um but that was there were many layers of insulation so we had insulation immediately under the roof then the floor of the attic then internal because we're end of terrace on two sides and then some external on some of the back and then at the side but just around the bottom so there was and then we had to do the roof of the kitchen which extends and underfloor in the kitchen we couldn't do underfloor in the main part of the body because the body of the house because when we took up a floorboard we discovered that it was so shoddily built there just wasn't space the joists were so teeny there was no room for any insulation to be inserted <laughs> so anyway, we put in what we could so what we, so this is basically typical of london old victorian stock london housing right yes and um it's probably true of places like birmingham and manchester and edinburgh and glasgow and all of these places is it or is it a I think they they vary. Um, why do I think that? Partly because London was built on clay, or pretty much all the bricks around here were dug out of the ground round here. Um, oh, I'm wow. not sure that that is the case. Yes, uh, just off Archway Road, for example, there are postcards which show massive brick fields, but enormous brick fields. Where they were making the bricks which then went to build up the park i mean super super sustainable yeah it is you dig the land 
you fire the brick, then you on the land you build the house. I I've, I've lived in um, I've lived in the area for about ten years now in Finsbury Park and in Islington for about fifteen. But you seem to know about five times more than me. How how long have you actually lived in North London then? Uh, since nineteen eighty one. Okay, right. Yeah, that's two decades longer than I am. Okay, but well, I think it's pretty it's amazing how much you know. Actually, where did you? Well, find no, it's most, you said well, postcards. Part, they're postcards. Yes, um, it's partly because I chair a, a community lobbying group, and as a result, you you get links and information that maybe wouldn't normally be circulated. Um, because if you're trying to preserve buildings, you want to know about the history of the building and why it was built and when it was built, you know, and so you build up a background. That's why. Yeah, it's, um, I've, I remember seeing a postcard on, uh, I joined a Facebook group called I was born in Islington. And there's one chap on there who keeps posting old photographs that he finds. And there's one that he found from Highgate, well, pretty much where Archway Bridge is, looking down yep towards Holloway mm -hmm. and it's all green yeah. fields it's and it's it's wow it's just uh yeah. pretty amazing yeah. but well it, it, it a, is depressing to think of the damage done by the road widening um which knocked out some 19th century early 19th century almshouses and then got rid of allotments you know it was all hooligans really vandals yeah, well, that's planning, basically. I don't think they, I don't think British governments like planning. Essentially, at every opportunity, any any progress made in planning is always taken back. And, yes. Uh, but um, well, we're getting away. We're getting away from um from the insulation. You put so you went through. You listed all of the insulation yeah. on your house. It was just like, wow, how many more bits? There's probably nowhere on your <laughs> house that isn't insulated. And, um, do you know? Do you know where where we missed because we had a um, a thermal image taken at the front okay. because we were offered a, a cheap thermal image which was taken at night. Um, what we discovered was that the double glazing on the top floor. This house gets all its weather on the top floor at the front, so we put double glazing there. Um, that was completely black. No heat at all was going out through those windows. Was this before or after? After. Okay. After, after we'd done it. Uh, our walls were considerably better than our neighbours, but not nearly as well insulated as this double glazing. But at the side, we hadn't thought that the U value, you know, the insulation value of a chimney breast is higher than an insulated wall. So I thought that's fine. We'll keep the two chimney breasts on the end of terrace wall. That will be sufficient insulation. What the photograph showed is that the opening of the chimney, of course, is not insulated. So there are these kind of almost very long, thin triangles, which show that that lot is going out through that fireplace. <laughs> and it's both of them. One of them is enclosed, but there's a there's a vent. That also is, you know, heat is going out there. So we didn't think it through. We should have insulated inside the chimney or something. But meanwhile, interestingly, the architect, despite his expertise, had said, save money, don't double glaze everything. 
um, just hang really thick curtains on the windows where you're not double glazed. So I made sure that on the night when this photograph was going to happen, that I closed the curtains on those windows. We discovered that those curtains, which are double insulated, there's a sort of furry lining and then there's a reflective lining. Yeah. They might as well not have been there. Really? Yes. So, I mean, wow. they stop the drafts or any sense of cold, but technically shows this, you know, thermal image. All the infrared is going, going straight through. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. So there would be one error. We should probably have paid for double glazing throughout. And another less important error is that we put in double glazing on the roof of the kitchen. And actually, because the rest of the kitchen is so heavily insulated, it's cold under that glass is cold because the cold air dropped. So we probably should have triple glazed there. Oh, right. But, you know, that you can live with. Right, yeah. <laughs> triple glazing. And also, there is a budget, you know. I can imagine the triple glazing is really expensive the, um, compared to just double glazing. But um, when you're on a budget, I can see I that. Yes, we didn't look at you can put in double glazing at any point afterwards though, can't you? Or was the, was it all well, like comprehensive? Well, on a sash window, it's kind of more complicated. Ah, um, right, okay. Because, you know, you've got to think about it uh, a bit. So maybe you need a whole new sash that will carry the extra width. And blah, blah, blah. We've paid for redoing all the windows. And I would say core sash, core sash windows who are North London specialists did a brilliant job, absolutely brilliant job for half the price of the alternatives. They were very difficult to deal with, but they absolutely knew their stuff. Oh, really? That's yes. often the case, actually. The less they want to do something, the better they'll actually do. They really did. I mean, it was like seven guys turned up and dealt with, we've got a lot of windows here. They dealt with 11 windows in about four and a half days one of the boxes needed to be completely rebuilt and in some cases some of the sashes and i mean they were just completely on it wow so you essentially had it sounds like you had zero insulation before that so you went from having <laughs> no insulation to having absolute almost 100 percent this this area was a, a mayoral low carbon zone and they issued us with household thermometers, which told you whether it was too hot or too cold. And uh, I'm, I think I've got one. Anyway, yes, here we are. And it says, I was sitting here in 15 degrees centigrade, too cold, increased risk of a heart attack strokes in vulnerable people. Luckily I wasn't vulnerable, but I was wrapped in a blanket whilst I was typing. You know, that's not really a comfortable environment to work in. No. And that, that was with the heating on, I should add. Yeah, that's the problem with the sedentary lifestyle or a sedentary working style. Mm -hmm. Especially for somebody like me who does most of my work at a computer, it's deadly. Your, your, metabol your metabolism just goes, oh, right, okay, my bum's hit the seat. I'm just going to turn myself down and not do anything. <laughs> It doesn't yes, bother yeah. producing heat or anything like that. You have to get up and run around. It's like the uh, 
I'm always amazed by these outdoor schools like in Sweden and Norway and, and you increasingly get them in the woods in England and stuff. Yeah. The kids just, they aren't, they aren't even allowed inside. They spend the whole day outside. It's because you're just active. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how we're going to... Go on. I did uh, consider buying fingerless mittens, but I, I decided not to. So I saved on fingerless mittens extra funding for the house insulation. <laughs> <laughs> so did your heating bill just completely drop massively? We did put in two extra radiators. So it's not quite like for like, um, but it, it has dropped. Um, it's slightly complicated because as children have got older, they've learned to turn on radiators in places where I don't think the radiator needs to be turned on. And let me guess, like they don't turn it off again either, right? And then they don't turn it off again. So, so we're not in like for like territory, but, but there has been a bit of a drop. Um, it's clearer with the electricity, despite children leaving the lights on, which drives me demented. References to black pool illuminations feature regularly, um, but we we reckon that there'd been about a fifty percent drop in the electricity bill. Now, part of that is because if we're running the washing machine, we make sure to do it in daylight hours. So effectively, that's free. If you don't run two pieces of equipment at the same time, you you're not burning more electricity than you're getting off your panels so uh you're not being charged for it so that helps okay and then we get our feed-in tariff payment we squeaked in you know there have been sort of phases of the amount of of payment being stepped down we squeaked in just before a step down so we get roughly a thousand seven hundred a year so we haven't quite yet paid off uh, the 12,000 cost, 12,000, 13,000 cost, but it was estimated it would take eight years to do that. And that's probably correct, strictly out of the feed-in tariff. But if you take into account the savings on our electricity bill, then we have already paid it off. Oh, you have, a, oh, that's good. If, if you take into account the savings. Oh, but are you taking into account the cost of all the insulation that you put in? No. So that would be no. probably more or less the same then. You'd probably well, still be looking uh, towards still paying it off. No, because the heating is not electrical. The heating is gas. We've got a gas boiler. So okay. there's no, none of the heating comes off the electricity bill. Okay, so you, I, would, I would just combine them all into one. If you combine them all into one pot and say, you know, just gas and electricity or whatever yes. you know that you know, i don't know if you've got if you've got a dual tariff supply um dual tariff contract with your energy provider uh, we use you have two energy Fine, but they came format of the bill and i have started complaining to them because when i'm comparing year with year i'm not comparing bills that look like each other i can't work out whether my predicted use has met my actual use so can you please just stop Choose how you're going to lay out the bills, and then I'll be able to make an assessment. Um, but it should—it is in effect a dual tariff because we get both from the same source. So yes, and they have started billing me one single um, sum 
but actually I find it quite useful to know how much is on gas and how much on electric because the gas does tell me how much is going on heating as a, an entity separately. Yeah, I use I use good energy as well, and I was quite impressed by all their well, all their advertising. Basically, they go on about um, they installed the first um, what's it called um, three phase the first three phase meter for somebody who had a whole bunch of photovoltaic solar panels on his roof. He had a mm -hmm. big fat charger for his Tesla. Uh, he had a heat pump in the back garden and had all sorts of other things that he wanted to do. And um, so he, he found that nobody could provide him with something that would actually allow him to, like, you, like you're complaining, get a good overview of what he can do with it all. Yeah. But Good yeah. Energy claimed that, um, that they sorted it all out for him. And so I thought, okay. oh, they must be good. And, um, and they've got a little app as well on, your, on my smartphone. I just type in the type it in on my smartphone, the, the gas meter reading and the electricity meter reading and send it off. And then um, almost immediately within the hour, I get back the, I get back the bill saying that they're going to withdraw so and so much at the next direct debit. But um, I've been I'm a bit of a sucker for advertising, really. I've been equally impressed by Octopus Energy because they've got a new tariff that's come out, which is um, sort of a flexi tariff. I think they call it Octoflex, and yeah. when the uh, when renewable energy is at, at peak supply in, in across the national grid, then they will drop the the price that they're paying for. Sorry, that they're demanding for electricity. So, and um, just recently, they had this this big sort of um, social media whirl about how they dropped their tariff price the flexi price down below zero so they're actually paying you to use electricity i figure at the end of the day probably just a stunt to get advertising but there are all mm -hmm. sorts of people going oh yeah yeah I, I turned my washing machine on and uh and got paid for using it it was really great and what time of day is that you know what i'm gonna have to look that up i it doesn't make um Let me just look that up quickly because I actually, I've actually got something where uh, it said one o'clock and I always thought it was one o'clock in the afternoon. But now that you're talking about photovoltaics at home, it doesn't make much sense to be, to be penalizing your customers who, you're, who are pumping energy into the, into the grid from their photovoltaics by actually forcing them to pay for it if you're going to give them a, a negative price on the on the mm. electricity so that just really doesn't make sense but I'll tell I mean, you what it might have been one in the morning it might have been one in the morning that might make sense uh, mm. yeah well you know now that doesn't make sense at all because there's no solar at one in the morning it might have been because of wind it might have been a uh, storm going yeah. on yes yes and a huge amount of huge amount of wind energy coming onto the grid and um you know what i there's no point in me looking for it while i'm chatting to you because it'll probably take me ages to find it tell you what else is a little irritating which is that we've actually got some flat roof that we could put another four kilowatts of panels on especially because the price of panels has dropped right but as soon as we add anything above the initial four kilowatts which is allowed for domestic use we lose our feed-in tariff. 
At least whenever I ask anybody, that's what I'm being told. So I will keep asking just in case at some point we can add the extra panels, because actually that will be quite useful, particularly if, as seems likely at some point in the nearish future, you might get batteries in which you can store it. Yeah, like if you've got an electric car, this is what Elon Musk and, uh, and Nissan and these car, car companies mm -hmm. are going on about. They want you to plug in, their, plug in the batteries from their car so that you can store yes. your energy in it. So that would actually, what you could do is just to sneak your way around it is to um, put your photovoltaics up there and store the energy in a battery and just not tell anybody about it. Yes, yes, yes. But that does require a battery that's workable. But at the moment, I'm, I haven't picked up on any that are uh, small enough to go next to the photovoltaics rather than, you know, on a small industrial site. Yeah. They seem to be quite big and quite heavy. Yeah, I've seen them on the sides of buildings. They're not actually, they're not actually that bad. They're more or less the size oh, okay. of, say, you know, on the, on the street, you see those cabinets for telephones, but for the um, for telecom companies. They're about sort of, a, they're okay. about a, just over a meter high. So, so they'll be about that big. Okay. So I'll look at it a bit more. But that said, I mean, I think loc I, I'm kind of supportive of using locally generated electricity because you don't lose that much. But the whole idea of using electricity for cars seems to me possibly not well thought through. Obviously, you get better air quality at the point where the car is being used. Not entirely better because there's lots of particulates off the tires. Oh, yeah. Um, but That's um it's only about, it's only 45% of the air pollution comes from the fuel, apparently. The rest point, of it comes from the tires and the clutches and all the other moving parts in the car and the road. I mean, uh, yeah, and meanwhile, your electricity, lots of it running into your car has been lost en route into your car. So, so you, assuming that you burnt some coal for it as well as using wind power and so on. So, uh, yeah, un, unjoined arcing, really. So, the, uh, although it seems like a virtuous thing to do to get an electric car, I doubt it. Can't see it happening. The um, I can see that getting an electric car means buying this great big shiny new hunk of metal that will take all sorts of energy to build, and you you would want that to all be renewable. You would hate to have had it built. <laughs> with all of the energy piped into the factory from the coal plant next door, that would be just like a complete waste of time. But I think the point of the renewable energy feeding into the grid, getting mixed up with all the coal and the gas generated and the nuclear generated energy, I think that's, um, it should be clear that if you're buying from an energy provider who gets all of their energy from renewables, then that's fine. The problem is it gets the whole the whole situation gets muddied by the fact that you can certify the government allows companies to certify their renewables and then sell them and i'm not quite sure how that works if they um it sounds like this this is the i think it's the classic double counting problem where a renewable company produces electricity and sells it to some, um, sort of gullible customers like us saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're getting our electricity from renewables from those wind turbines up on the hills. 
uh, whereas in actual fact, what's happening is the is the energy company then sells off a bunch of certificates for the amount of energy that their wind turbines produced to the coal-fired uh, power gen energy generators, who then use it to to flog to their customers under their tariff, saying, "Oh yeah, no worries." You can buy all of this coal-generated electricity because we've offset it with these carbon with these um, certificates from the government. And it's like, by the time we've caught up and worked out what's going on, it's mm -hmm. yeah, it's right. Yeah. But yeah. you're right. But the uh, we should know about those things, and it should be obvious at the end of the day when you think about it. The um, the whole point of the whole point of renewables is that it's going to replace gas and coal and fossil fuels. And if you don't support the energy the energy providers who are producing renewables, then they're never going to grow. And um, and having so having a car and using a ton of energy, if it comes from renewables, then surely that's okay. It's just the question is whether you think it's actually sort of ethically slightly dubious just to use huge amounts of energy regardless of where it comes from if you're just an energy glutton then um you know you should go and live in the sahara and have a whole have have sort of four gigawatts of solar panels in your back garden yeah uh it's very difficult i mean you know we've done a super home but more or less every year we drive to italy and uh, it's yeah, the car is 12 years old so it's not like we bought a one recently. But driving's, but driving's fine. Even Greta Thunberg drives places, although I think she probably rents. No, she can't. I, I don't understand how she managed to rent an electric car because I actually tried to do that, but I couldn't get one. The only place that I could rent an electric car in London was from Milton Keynes. So, so basically, uh, Milton Keynes Council were running a, running a, a promotion to get people into electric cars. So they were subsidizing this electric car hire company to um, rent out electric golfs at a, at a reduced okay. price. But the thing is, you can only rent it once and then they've got your name and they know that if you keep going back there, then they go, no, no, you can only do it once, sorry. Okay. But other than that, you can't get them anywhere, despite the fact that everybody's talking about, oh, yeah, we're going to get a fleet of electric cars. It, it hasn't happened in a couple of years that they've been talking about it. Well, also, it will need a bit of international support. And in Italy, there really aren't any charging points. So you could charge at home, maybe. But then you go driving about, then where are you supposed to charge? Um, France you... is a bit better. But the Italians are notoriously hospitable, right? So you can just go and knock on a door and say, yeah, can I plug my car in? <laughs> and have yeah. some wine while we wait. And, uh, and The trouble is not when you're just parked on the street outside a, a, a guest bed and breakfast or something like that, you know, or a hotel. I don't know. I don't know. They may shift. They, but certainly they didn't seem very interested. On the other hand, their, their sort of white hot heat of technology was in the 60s. And I think they're realizing that those um, are all coming home to roost. You know, that their, their concrete bridges and viaducts aren't all the fabulousness that they thought, given that they started falling down. And it seems quite possible that quite a lot of their buildings might start doing the same 
because they thought that concrete would be a really good solution because it would be a quick way of putting things up. But they didn't realize that water gets into concrete and therefore the reinforcement is not stainless and is rusting. So I, th I think there's going to be trouble soon. But isn't that, a, isn't that a problem in the whole world or is that just because they should have used stainless steel in Italy or what? Well, I think in England, we weren't building quite so much, so many of those buildings early on. They threw up a lot. Oh, right. Um, it was, you know, their post-war boom, really. So you've really, you've really got an eye for this sort of thing. That kind of segues into, into your work on um, the sort of community lobby group for mm. Archway in, in North Islington, where yeah. London Borough of Islington does has been did a lot of work on Archway that came in was it last yes. year or the year before now uh year before now yes but in fact you've been i uh, you must have been active on this for 10 years longer 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 i yep. think i started i started 16 years ago um there was a proposal to redevelop the center of archway um by knocking everything down so everybody went yay those horrible blocks will go except you discovered that if they knock them down the calculation went in order to cover the costs we have to build twice as tall so there's already a 16-story block you would have been looking at a 32-story block i mean it, you know it made no sense at all and as happens with these things they were firmly reassuring the public that these buildings were at the end of their lives and they just had to be knocked down because they were about to fall down and 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 and, and it is a bit like turning around a tanker and it takes quite a lot of effort um, but eventually you persuade the system to take a different view um, and they realized that actually the idea of putting a massive hypermarket at the bottom of big new towers wasn't really going to do the local economy any good uh, it would just make the area less livable it would bring more traffic it would bring more trucks it would damage all the little shops on the high street which were one of the few things that did seem to be surviving at that stage um, and uh, it would also you know hurt hurt the area so eventually planning policy was changed and the would-be developers went away and sure enough the buildings transpired not to be at the end of their lives they just got stripped back to their skeletons and reclad um so you counted that as a sort of a, a bit of a, a victory going back to sort of climate change and energy and um and energy and um low carbon and so on do you see many of those things going through in all of these projects that have come? Do you see yeah. any of those things being coming in as factors that the that the council and local people and uh, developers and so on are actually aware of? Maybe they're, they're very aware, aware. Of even acting on. More to the point. No, what what they do is they manipulate them. There's something called a BRIAM rating, and I can't remember what BRIAM stands for. British Rating Energy. Um, and what they do is when they're making a practical uh, a planning application they say uh that this is a an x say a bream rating three or bream rating two 
but what you can do is manipulate that as, for example, one of the office block conversions did, which got converted into a hotel by making the windows very small. Now, if you make the windows very small and you're not bothering to make them double glazed, you're just making it so that the official insulation rating is good. The quality of life inside these teeny little windows is very bad, but you've ticked the Brienne box. So I think there's a lot of that sort of manipulation. There's a lot of promising to do things that don't happen. So Archway Heights on the Archway Road, the planning application was put in. It was opposed by most people. And they went, yeah, yeah, and we'll create a green roof. So when you walk over the Archway Bridge, you'll look down, you'll see greenery. And then it transpired that, oops, they'd made a mistake. There was no room in the shell of the building for the plant. So the plant was going to have to go on the roof and uh, sorry, we can't do the green roof. Now, they knew perfectly well that there was no room within the building. But on the original application, they say green roof because they know that the councillors who are sitting on the planning committee will think that that looks good. Thank you. There's, there's a lot of that sort of manipulation going on. No sort of, and it, isn't that like, a, isn't that some sort of impunity that they just can just go and say, oh, well, it's gonna make, there must be some level of, uh, of comeback where they go, what was no. the green roof? Well, we can, I'm afraid you're going to have to retrofit your green roof. You would think, and there is a, a department of planning which is called enforcement, but like all planning departments, it's, it's had all its money taken away. They can only really afford to pick either um, cases where they know they won't get pushback and people will actually do it, um, or things which are so appalling that they're likely to feature in private eye. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually a, a commercial developer, they're very, of that sort of project, they're very unlikely to bother with. And the commercial developer absolutely knows it. That, so, and they, they play on it. I mean, so as much. one architect said to me, you know, generally those developers use planning advisors why do they use planning advisors? Right, but, you know, they're the developer, they know what they're doing. And this architect said they use a planning advisor to lie so that they don't have to. I mean, I don't know why, but I've never yet met a developer who doesn't lie. It's very strange. Sometimes they lie about things that it's not even particularly in their interest to lie, but they still do it. It's, it's something about the industry. Oh, you make them sound like estate agents or recruitment consultants or something. God, that's. I yeah. think I think arguably they're worse. So do you do you find that that constantly involving yourself in cases like this, where you're up against that sort of challenge, don't you find it really disheartening that it's just con you're having to battle this constant stream of bullshit? And uh, I would, I mean. I suppose there's a bit of a parallel to it in, in terms of um, talking about climate change when the, mm. when the internet is so full of all these sort of well-funded climate denial campaigns going on and so on. But yeah. Um, yeah. no, it's not, it's not good. I, I would, um, no, it's not. And I think they, they do rely on many councillors being very gullible. Pretty pictures 
and the councillors go, yes, yes, that would be an improvement on the rundown building. And the councillors can't see that that rundown building actually has some really nice brick. And you just need to scrub it and replace the sash windows and you're fine. They don't, you know, yeah. why they put people on planning committees who don't understand or care about buildings, I don't understand. But, but there is the issue that there is no requirement to take into account the carbon footprint of demolition. It is, it's an enormous carbon footprint. It should be calculated yeah. and there should be a requirement that it is made up for because the default should be you reuse the existing housing stock or office stock or whatever it is. Because it's like, as you say, buying a new electric car. Yeah, it's all shiny and new, but the carbon footprint of that brand new thing is enormous. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, the, the, apparently it takes about 60 years to pay off the carbon footprint of a new building. Uh, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. It is um, that, huge. Yes, that's, huge. that's not being taken into account. No, not at all. The, um, what you see when you go to places like Thailand or, or the, in, um, in the uh, developing countries and so on, you see people like uh, with their bricks, with these old bricks, they're recycling them. They're just literally sitting there hammering, hammering away at all these old bricks and cleaning them up. And you see them on the sides of the road. I guess you see it in all things to do with recycling because labor is just, um, because people live on what, $5 a day over there then. That means labor is so cheap, it make, makes it worth doing it. But over here, you just chuck it. The cost well, is how it, much it costs to send it to landfill, and that's about it. There is that element. The other problem is, however, that if you've used concrete on your bricks, then they're basically trashed. If it's still the original mortar, you can knock it off and start again. Um, right. So, so you... You know, you have to hope that nobody pointed the building with concrete. Right. That should be, <laughs> that should be made, that should be brought in as a law. There are tons of laws yeah. that could be made. Yes. It would just be so sensible and would have minimum, minimum impact yes. on anybody. Yes. So when did you, going back to climate change again, when did you first become aware of this? Because it sounds like that you, well, you know, Sounds like basically you were sort of born with it. It seems to permeate a lot, most of the stuff that you've been talking about all the way. Yes, I suppose, yeah, it's it kind of instinctive. Um, for me, I, I do remember joining Friends of the Earth when I was at university. I haven't done a great deal actively. But I did travel the world and I observed things like, you know, in the north of Thailand, where they were deforesting and cutting roads into the side of the hill. And you're thinking that is so unsustainable. You know, the whole thing in the next heavy rains are going to go down the hill. Um, and observing the levels of pollution in the places I was going, at, which has got worse and worse and worse. Um, and gradually maybe some places turn around you know when i was as because i've got family in italy we go to italy as a child in the northern lakes we would swim and then there was a 
phase in the 70s and 80s where you really you wouldn't really swim in those lakes because all of the developments around had stopped going to do their laundry in the lake. I do remember Italy, if you like, had such poverty that people still use the lake for their laundry. Um, they, they'd acquired washing machines, but the washing machines were going straight into the lake, you know, with all of those very super powerful bio detergents. And of course it was all getting polluted. And then somebody woke up and said, you know, these lakes, the water only actually fully changes every 80 years. We've got to stop doing this. It's not like it'll just flush out. So now it's back to a level where it's clean enough and you can swim in it. And local people have sort of understood that they need to look after their environment. Cities, I think people have less awareness. They, they're kind of detached. But the other thing that, that really distresses me, and I'm not a naturalist, is the damage we've done to the natural world. You know, the, the number of birds has plummeted even from when I was a child. And I think it's sort of, without wanting to make a pun, it's kind of the canary in the coal mine. If this place isn't healthy enough for birds, then it's not good for us either. And that, that, that distresses me. That said, I live in the first world and I do drive to Italy and I do live in a three-story house, even though there are only four of us in it. And, yeah, you know, I, I catch the tube to go to the West End. I don't walk three miles. Um, so I can't, I can't be holier than thou. I do, I, I do do lots of this stuff that is not great. Um, but I do think that, that either we are going to have to scale back a bit or we're going to be really unhappy. Or maybe not. I mean, one of the interesting things about lockdown actually was that reverting to a 19, what felt to me like a 1950s way of living was actually rather nice in the sense that there was no pressure. You didn't have to rush off to see the latest exhibition or, or meet <laughs> friends. and you, know, you couldn't do it. You could go for a walk. You could quietly go and get some food and come back and cook. And yes, you could talk to friends on Zoom and so on and so forth, but, but it, was, it was a sort of older way of doing things. And it was, I found it interesting that quite a lot of people seemed to like that. Not if they were cooped up with, you know, three under twos, um, right. you know, twin, so. twins and a baby or something, but, but yeah. I, I have, um, I've got a garden. You said you've got a garden. And I think that's one of the key things yeah. is that um, the people who really suffered were the ones who just basically didn't even have a balcony. And um, yes. so if they wanted yes. to get out, yes. they would have to go walk, walk down the street and back again and walk around the block. And um, yeah, yes. so I kind yes. of feel Are really right? that I didn't that's really... By the, the cities. I, yeah. can't even, I can't even empathize with that because I can't imagine being in that situation. I mean, take away my garden. Um, well, my landlord's garden, and I would be, yeah, it would be a case of cabin fever. I'd just be going stir crazy, I guess. And um, so mm. all of this stuff with Black, Life Ma Black Lives Matter and the idea of privilege and, and, um, yeah. and um, 
recognizing your own privilege was is definitely the case that 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 area some that area there of, of lockdown where where i have got my little flat okay it's not that big but we've got a garden we can go out into and i compare myself to the other people down this street or even my neighbors upstairs and um yeah it's tough that's my privilege and my luck i suppose so uh, i'm ready to mention rational carbon which is the charity that we've been talking about a lot and that i uh, persuaded you to be a trustee for and um that's all about carbon rationing and carbon rationing groups and setting up local carbon rationing groups to allow people to essentially combine forces on reducing their carbon footprints i think the i think at this at this point in the game where carbon rationing and or where rational carbon is very new i've still got to work out the best way of or rather we've still got to work out the best way of pitching it to people who don't know anything about it and i know that when you say rationing people's kind of um people's antennae go up and they go or their ears prick up and they go rationing you're going to take something away from me <laughs> but uh most maybe you need to a leaf out of the people who do um, uh, birth control in Africa, who don't talk about limiting children, they talk about spacing children. Oh, right. That's a very Because limiting, limiting is a bad idea, but spacing is a good idea. Yeah, the other thing occurred to me as well is that the only thing that would, that would be rationed is the actual fossil fuel itself. So, when you go to fill up a tank of petrol uh fill up your car with a tank of petrol under a, when you're carbon rationing well and in our case we're talking about voluntary carbon rationing so you would be you know you join up and you go right so i've i've got my 25 kilos this week i'm gonna i'm now gonna go down to the petrol station and i'm gonna fill up five kilos so that is ration that is a ration you could literally only do that five times if you've got your five kilos of, of um, how about, rations. How about calling it an allocation? Yeah, I don't know. But when you call it an allocation, people don't... The problem... They don't know what it means? Yeah, the problem is people don't know what it means. When you say rationing, although people are repulsed by the idea, people immediately know what you're talking about. But what they... And then what you need to... Then what we need to say is, okay, yes, carbon rationing, so you will only be able to get so and so many tank falls the petrol out of it but when you're talking about everything else in society that is going to have that is going to go through this transition from being fossil fuel based at the moment whatever it is whether it's your holiday or your or your uh, meal in a restaurant or your theater tickets or your your shopping at, or whatever all of it has got some more or less uh, degree of, of fossil fuel energy supply in the system and what you're doing is you're not actually rationing the products themselves and the services themselves that you're going out to buy what you're doing is you're you're rationing the means of production so you're saying we're going to ration the people who are going out there and producing these really carbon intense products but if you want to produce the same service or the same product and put that out on the market but using green energy um, sustainable um no co2 or anything then that won't be rationed at all so essentially 
it's not rationing, but it is rationing. So it's a kind of, uh, it's a bit of a quandary about how to pitch it. Mm. I think rationing is, is, is going, as you say, is going to, people understand it, but they don't like it. So it needs to be, it needs a different word. Share, yeah. maybe. Well, in, even sharing, children don't like sharing. <laughs> um. uh, historically, I mean, in a sort of modern history of carbon rationing, it was uh, obviously it was done during the war because you had petrol rationing as well as direct rationing of everything else like wheat and bread and uh, mm. flour and butter and dairy products and meat. And then it moved and then it, it sort of was sidelined because we didn't have to have any rationing right up until the, uh, the Blair government brought in the carbon, um, I mean the Climate Change Act, the first Climate Change Act in 2007 or 2008. And they suddenly started thinking about how on earth they're going to they're going to enact that. How are they going to get people to to transition from fossil fuels to renewables? And they put forward the um, the idea of a carbon credit card. So you would have your rations on a card, and immediately there was an intense reaction from the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph and the Sun, and. Uh, it was David Miliband, who was the Labour Home Secretary or the Energy Secretary, who then shelved it, <laughs> realised that it, that it wasn't the moment politically for it, even though actually it would have been mm, introduced mm. then, everything would have been so much easier. And the, but the... Um, do do you think it, it's worth used, talking... Sorry, I, ju I just wanted to say, they yes. used the term yes. carbon rationing. They, used, they just said rationing, oh, okay. carbon rationing. Well, that, that may have been why there was such an immediate kickback. But what I was wondering was whether it's worth going to talk to small communities that have suffered from climate change, those places which have been flooded out as a result of the changing weather, whether that would be the place to start. Because small communities talk to each other. Yeah. And if, if you can catch two or three key people Right. they will then draw everybody else and then you've got an exemplar which you can show another small community that's also been you know flooded because of climate change or i'm right that's the, people need to feel they're not alone in it no what i'm doing right now is trying to get together a founding uh, group of people who are interested in this stuff, who are kind of actors, uh, maybe sort of 20 people, 30 people who would act as a sort of, pretty much like a citizens assembly thing that they had for, um, for a climate change assembly that they had nationally mm -hmm. here in the UK, yep. where people just sat down, they listened to all of the arguments and they, and they made up their own minds. And yep. uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to get some people who are obviously gonna be interested in doing something about climate change and get feedback about how to do it. How do you implement this stuff? Where do you start? You're gonna to have to start keeping a tally of what you spend your money on and how much carbon, how much CO2 you actually emit in the course of your daily life. So, and that's uh, at the beginning, what you just use a spreadsheet and um, then build it from there. And there's so much to do. It's uh, there's, there's lots of companies out there who are already doing pretty much exactly what this kind of carbon rationing, uh, the carbon rationing technology 
um, would provide, except for they're doing it for carbon offsets. So what I'm thinking about is talking to them. Uh, there's a couple of apps you can get, and they plug into your bank account, and they work out what you've spent your money on because you can you can label your transactions on your bank account via this app. So you went to the restaurant, you went to the uh, um, petrol station, you went to the travel agent, and it does a rough calculation of how much you're using. And at the moment, these these apps, the people who, the companies who run these apps, then go, you've spent, you've used 50 kilos of carbon already. Do you want to offset that? We've got this great little market over here and that's how they make the money. Mm. But what you want to do is just feed that into, um, feed that into the carbon rationing group so that they can tell exactly what's going on. And uh, you, you have it on your mobile phone and uh, it all runs like clockwork. It, it would make it really easy. Anyway, I, um, I, my husband has been reading a book called Surveillance Society, which is deeply depressing. My suspicion in the light of the content of that book is that those organizations doing the offset are also selling the information that they're obtaining about how people shop. And, you know, some people will be aware that their information is, is being exploited and won't want to take part. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure they will. I mean, that's a, that's a big concern for a lot of people. Mm. Um, to a certain extent, we're there, we're there already. We have WhatsApp, and everybody uses it so much, and everybody is constantly surprised that they that they send a message to their friend about I don't know what sort of um, nail gloss, and then suddenly they're starting adverts for nail gloss, and it's like, wow, yep. that's a big coincidence. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yes. Not. So yes. the yeah, yeah, I mean, I. I completely agree. That is a danger, and um, I'm not quite sure how you tackle it. But uh, yeah. it would be great to be in, great to be in a position with Rational Carbon, the charity, to actually have to sit down and have a really good discussion about whether that's how you would tackle something like that. Mm -hmm. Because um, I mean, so do, does Rational Carbon have a spreadsheet that people could access, which tells you how much a Primark t-shirt costs in terms of carbon or how much uh, uh, driving to Devon costs in terms of carbon. You know, is there, is there something where you can look it up? Not quite so, not quite so, a bit more granular than that. Sorry, granular or do I mean the opposite? A bit, a bit, less, opposite, fine, yes. a bit less fine detail than that. Right. And there's, I mean, there's a, there's a choice. There's a choice. There are, people have been doing this sort of, these sort of spreadsheets for decades now um you know all the all the people like friends of the earth and greenpeace and world wildlife fund they came up with these things uh yonks ago and um unfortunately because they the last thing i wanted to say just to wrap up was uh the last thing i wanted to ask just to wrap up was um i'm looking for it now again my my, my brain's gone blank after that techno glitch um oh yeah it was was I was I mean when I asked you to be a trustee for a, a carbon rationing charity, I was really chuffed that you said yes because I really didn't think you would. I really didn't think you would. <laughs> what do you, do you actually think that? Um, did you think beforehand? Well, carbon rationing is actually gonna is gonna be the way to do it, and you were just waiting for somebody to come along and say that, or do you or or did you go? Oh well. Yeah got to do something so why not this or what 
No, for, funnily enough, it was my daughter. Uh, I think in about year nine, said, there's this book, you should really read it, you'll like it, mum. And it's the story of a teenager growing up in a family in London at a time when there is carbon rationing. And the family goes, goes to do something and they discover that the older sister has burnt their carbon ration on buying a ticket to Ibiza to go clubbing, you know, and then the rest of the family are really, really, really pissed off with her. So, so I had kind of come across it as a concept and thought, well, yeah, nah, yes, isn't that how it's got to be? Um, that was, um, that was um, I'm not, not sure how to produce, pronounce the author's name, but I've got that book and I'm reading it. It's really, yeah. it's really good. It's a fun book. It's a fun book. It's the Carbon um, Diary. The Carbon Diaries. The Carbon Diaries. There yeah. were two of them. There were two of them. They, she did a follow-up. I don't know whether you read that as well. No, I never read the follow-up. So have you moved on to the second or are you still only on the first? No, I'm only on the first. First, okay. Well, so, so yes, I had thought of it and I do think that we have to try our best. I do think I've said this uh, to various people that Kristen Tickell, who's been working on eco issues since the time of Margaret Thatcher, gave a talk that I went to and he said he had reached the conclusion after decades that action will only happen after there's a minor catastrophe. And we've had minor catastrophes. I mean, in recent floods, somebody, the sheriff, local sheriff actually died. That's not proving enough. So I, sadly, I think it's going to take a really major catastrophe before people take it seriously. And yet there are still climate change deniers um, who have positions of power. And it may mean that, that, that you know, People go, it's going to wipe out the earth. No, it's not going to wipe out the earth, but it might wipe out humanity. Um, unless we do something about it. And, you know, maybe the population has just got to the stage where it's beyond, it's out of our control. But I still think you have to walk your talk and you have to try and do the right thing. So that's what I'm doing. That, that's, um, that's great. And that's pretty much the same the same view that I thought well actually your second your second option there that that some people might start thinking that it's too late describes perfectly the uh, professor of economics that I was that I'm friends with who uh, his idea is that his prognosis is essentially that the system's never going to do anything about it until it's way too late and then they will be f and then they will see that the only way to seriously do anything about it will be to bring in carbon rationing and it will probably cost us democracy and uh, quite a few other things that society holds dear, yeah. which um, which won't be pretty at all. Um, but I, I think one of the key factors of climate change and why it doesn't register for a lot of people, especially the people who, who are just not interested in hearing about why climate change is important, is because climate change doesn't actually cause anything itself in itself. It just makes things worse. So you're going to have a hurricane. Um, what was the one that wiped out New Orleans? Hurricane Harvey? Katrina. Katrina, Hurricane Katrina. I thought, this is it. This is the big disaster. It's like being made so much worse by climate change, heated up the surface of the Caribbean, and it just 
the hurricane just zoomed in there and wiped out everything. Surely now some people are going to wake up. And it's like, oh no, yeah. we have hurricanes here all the time. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh, yeah. okay, yeah. I see what's going on now. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. So, so maybe it is, as your uh, economist friend says, that it will come later when it's really too late and it's all done in a rush. But at least this is laying the ground so people understand what it's about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to pick up on a point that you made, made a while back in the conversation, actually, I think that the, uh, there, is still, there is still every reason to be optimistic about the way things that'll pan out. And the, the fact that the human population on the planet is 7 billion is just a mind it's just a mind-boggling number you tell seven billion to a child and you might as well say seven gazillion because they won't know what that means and it just basically means that the planet is massively massively populated and everywhere you go you're going to meet people everywhere you go but there are still scientists who say whose work tells you that we can support the human race with there's enough agricultural and, and even even like um with with what is what are viewed as totally um totally incompatible things like organic agriculture how can we possibly feed the planet with organic agriculture and yet that is the sustainable way of doing it and even with that kind of low intensity agriculture across the planet you can still do it and so i think there's every reason to be positive about the whole situation and every reason to well, push for the, the best outcome possible. I had a very interesting conversation with some people who live outside Winchester, which is a fairly right-wing area. And they are good friends with a very, very big farmer there. And they were saying, they had recently been to a talk which said there are only 20 more harvests in the British soil unless we change our agricultural approach. Now, this is, these are people who would normally be right-wing and conservative with a small C, if not a big C. And if this is the way we farm, we continue farming like this. They're saying that all of this deep tilling, deep, deep turning over of the soil and losing topsoil is not sustainable. And one of the things that we saw coming through France was exactly that kind of agriculture. You could see the topsoil blowing away with these enormous tractors turning it over. Yeah. No birds following, which tells you, first of all, possibly that there are no birds, but also there's <laughs> nothing in that soil no worms. for birds to eat. There are right. no worms. That is dead soil. So, so there yeah. does need to be a change of approach to agriculture, but it's very interesting. And I am sort of slightly reassured that if people like that are talking about it, yeah. then actually, it is getting some kind of traction right okay so there let's, are positives let's leave it on that positive point though before we come up with something devastating instead <laughs> okay okay well thanks, thanks for interviewing me thank you very much for being my first podcast uh audi audience no my first podcast visitor and um right. so i'll sign off now and uh i'll speak to you later thanks a lot that's good. Thanks. Bye.
That was Kate Calvert, and it was my pleasure having her here on the podcast. My name is Adam Hardy, and this is the Carbon Watchdog podcast. All of the website content and uh, the podcasts are free. If you like what Carbon Watchdog is doing, then please head over to patreon.com using the link on the website and support me there. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune in to the next one. Bye.